Good evening. If you would turn with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want us to look one more time at uh, this passage. First Timothy chapter two. Colossians four two says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and that is written to uh, not an individual person, but to a church, uh, telling um, the church at Colossae to continue steadfast in prayer and to be watchful in it, to be careful about maintaining a life of prayer together as a church. Let's read these first eight verses again. First Timothy chapter two verses one through eight. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. I trust that all the men here understand that it is a great privilege and a great responsibility to lead God's people in public prayer. I want us to go back to verse 8 again this evening. Just by way of reminder in these verses, we've been instructed to pray for specific immediate needs that we have, for general ongoing needs, for the needs of others beyond ourselves. We are to engage in intercessory prayer, and we are to pray with with praise and thanksgiving. And we're to do those things for all kinds of people. No one is excluded from the proper scope of our prayers. And we're to do it for, for Christ's church, for the well-being of the present church, that it might have a peaceful and quiet life. And we could say that the other part of our praying is for the, the future church, those yet unsaved for their salvation and for the effectiveness of the gospel. We saw last time that Christian men are to pray uh, made holy by grace, but pursuing uh, by grace uh, the holiness that we are to have as Christian men, and and uh, and we are we are uh, we are holy men, as we said last time, by grace for sure. It is because of Christ. Yet we are to be pursuing it, and it should have a sanctifying effect on us. The fact that we are responsible for coming. Uh, into God's house and leading his people in prayer. Now, tonight I want us to consider the uh, what I'm going to call the posture of prayer and talk about some practical matters concerning the way that we pray. Now, verse 8 raises the question of the pos- posture of prayer. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. If you consider with me the words lifting holy holy hands is paul in this command directing us to a a specific posture of prayer is he telling us and this is a command this is like a decree paul says i 
I command that prayers be made in every place. And so is he commanding, commanding us as part of this command that he's given us in verse 8? Is he commanding us a specific posture of prayer? That is uh, to pray by lifting, literally lifting our hands in this physical posture with our, our bodies. And so let's, let's think about that for just a moment. William Hendrickson said this. Some of you may know the commentator William Hendrickson. He said, Posture in prayer is never a matter of indifference. The slouching position of the body while one is supposed to be praying is an abomination to the Lord. On the other hand, it is also true that Scripture nowhere prescribes one and only one correct posture for prayer. Different positions of arms, hands, and of the body as a whole are indicated. All of these are permissible as long as they symbolize different aspects of the worshiper's reverent attitude and as long as they truly interpret the sentiments of the heart. And so what he's saying there is, is that we aren't given a, we aren't prescribed a particular exact posture that we have to assume when we pray. That in the scriptures there are many postures of prayer and that the important thing is, is that the way we are on the outside is reflecting what our true heart is on the inside. Let me give you some examples. The first one is standing to pray. Let me give you a few verses. I'm going to look at them just very quickly. You're welcome to turn with me if you'd like. Mark eleven twenty-five. Mark eleven twenty-five. Says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. And this verse begins by saying, whenever you stand praying, and that apparently was a common uh, posture for people to have when they were praying uh, in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 18, in verses 11 and 13. We have in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying. And then when we come to verse 13, it says, But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So we see them there in the posture of standing as they pray. Another thing that the scriptures mention oftentimes is hands lifted. Our verse that we just read in 1 Timothy 2.8 speaks about it. Let me give you a couple of other references. 1 Kings 8.22. 1 Kings 8.22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. Nehemiah 8, 6. Nehemiah 8, 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So we see the posture of lifting up the hands, and then we see them, the people bowed low before the Lord. Psalm 63, 4. Psalm 63, 4. 
So I will bless thee as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands in thy name. Psalm 134, 2. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. In Psalm 141, 2. May my prayer be counted as incense before thee, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. And so we see that the posture of lifting up the hands is very prevalent in the scriptures. Another one is the bowing of the head. Genesis twenty four forty eight. Genesis twenty four forty eight. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman, for my son, I bowed low and worshiped the Lord. And then we see the eyes lifted up again in Psalm 121 1. The eyes lifted up, which is very different from the posture that we normally have when we pray. Psalm 121 1. I will lift up my, he- my eyes to the mountains, from whence shall my help come. Now that should be very familiar to us because we sing that song very often here. Uh, in, uh, especially on Sunday evenings. Then Psalm 123, 1. To thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. And then look with me at the Gospel of John, at John eleven forty one. John eleven forty one. And so they removed the stone. This is standing in front of Lazarus' tomb. And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me. And then over in chapter 17, verse 1, John 17, 1, our Lord's high priestly prayer. These things Jesus spake, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, and then he begins uh, this uh, prayer of chapter 17. We see people kneeling. Again, Psalm 95, verse 6. Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Luke twenty-two forty-one. And I'm giving you just selected passages. There are a number that speak to these things. Luke twenty-two forty-one. Again, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, And he himself, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. And then we see people also lying prostrate. Uh, Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then one last thing in this regard in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne 
and worshiped God. And then over in chapter 11, verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. And so we see these many different postures of prayer in this scripture. Standing, hands lifted up, head bowed, eyes lifted up, kneeling, lying prostrate. And so there, there, are, these, there are these many different postures. Now, even our Lord Jesus Christ we saw uh, assuming different postures of prayer. And so I think we can make the following observations that standing indicates reverence. Lifting up hands indicates dependency and expectancy. Bowing the head indicates a spirit of submission. Eyes lifted indicate our hope is in God alone. Kneeling indicates humility and respect. Falling on one's face indicates that we are in awe of God. The modern custom of Folding the hands and closing the eyes is of unknown uh, origin. We don't really know where our modern practice of putting our hands together and closing our eyes, uh, where that practice came from. But I think if we, were, if we do a careful study of the posture of prayer, what we find is that the postures are generally appropriate for the circumstances and the occasions. There's different postures of prayer because the people are in different circumstances of life, or they're in different places, different times. And so the postures that we see are appropriate for the circumstance at hand. Lifting hands was a common posture for prayer in Paul's day. And I believe what Paul is saying is, in our verse in 1 Timothy 2.8, I believe what he's saying is, is that when you pray, you are to be holy without anger and quarreling, and that he is not directing us towards a particular prayer posture and so the question is well what is appropriate for us in our setting in our circumstances when we're uh, together in Christ's church and we come together for corporate prayer so I want you to consider with me these uh, consider these practical considerations about corporate prayer if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because the first thing I want to bring to your attention is spoken to in this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you would look with me at verse 26. He says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So the first principle I want to bring before you is, is what should we be concerned about when we pray and when we have corporate prayer is that our prayer is to be edifying to the church. Also look at verse 12 here of this chapter. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. Our prayers should be edifying to the church. They should build up the church. Well, how are our prayers, our corporate prayers, going to build up the church? Well, if they're to do that, the very first thing that we need to uh, consider is that they must be heard. Now, one of the big issues in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 here is the issue of people are sometimes in the services here in Corinth, but they don't understand what's going on. 
They're not able to understand and participate in what's being done because there is a, there's a speaking in tongues, but there's no interpretation. And so they don't understand what's going on. And Paul says, don't do that because that's not edifying to the church when people can't understand and when they cannot join in and be helped by what is happening in the church. And so it is with our prayers. And so I would suggest that when we pray, that we stand and if necessary, turn and face the congregation and to speak loud enough for everyone to hear. Now, this is, this is not rocket science, but this is very important. We are to pray together. It is to, to be one collective voice of prayer. We are all praying about the same thing as we are being led. But to do that, we must hear. We must be able to hear the person praying and understand what they're saying so we can engage with them and pray along with them. And so we don't want to lead in prayer by sitting with our head down and our hands in front of our face so that no one can hear us. We want to stand and we want to speak uh, loudly so that everyone in the congregation can hear what we say as we pray. Another thing that we should do is we should pray in the first person plural. When you pray, you should say we. Remember that when, you're, when we're involved in corporate prayer, that we are leading all of us as we pray. And so the, it's not first person that I am praying for my concerns. It is that we are praying for our concerns. And as we lead in prayer, we should use that kind of language that uh, we should say we it is not I it is we that are praying another thing that we should consider is this don't try to develop an artificial prayer language we don't need to adopt a special style or vocabulary we don't need to use a different tone of voice now, when I say that, let me be careful to say this one thing. Let me be careful to add that I am not discouraging the special use of Scripture in our praying. So when I say don't use special prayer language, I'm not saying don't pray using the language of Scripture. A case can be made that the very best praying, wonderful praying, is prayer which incorporates the words and the phrases of Scripture appropriately in our prayers. We ought to seek to do that. And if you hear people pray, if you hear many different people pray, uh, one of the things I've always been just, uh, it just like stops you and you just, you just, uh, you think that is, that is the way that I wish I could pray is when people's prayers are just steep in the Word of God. And so we ought to try to do that. But we should understand that there is no prayer style that we need to copy. And when I say we need to copy, as individual men, we're all different, and we don't need to try to copy some special style of prayer. If we sound just as different from one another when we pray, as we are each one different and unique one from another, then that just adds to the richness and fullness and variety of Christ's church. We're not supposed to sound exactly the same when we pray. It's not, we're not supposed to be like little copies of one another. We are individual people, and when we pray, we should pray uh, as what is natural to us. We should speak the way we speak. 
And we shouldn't be concerned about trying to copy other people. We shouldn't, you shouldn't try to pray like Pastor Justin. Many of you know, will know who I'm talking about when I say Pastor A.N. Martin uh, from uh, Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. Had a, a lot of influence over a, a, a lot of pastors over the years. But there is a whole generation of pastors who sound just like Pastor Martin when they pray. And I would suggest that that's not what we're supposed to try to do. We don't need to try to copy anyone. God made you to be you. He saved you and brought you into Christ's church and and into this particular church as an individual, unique person. Be yourself when you pray. Another thing for us to consider is this. Don't hesitate to pray because you are self-conscious. Now, I've heard it said many times that the, the biggest fear, the greatest fear that Americans have is speaking in public. I've heard that. I don't know if, it's, if that's true, but I've heard that said a number of times, that the greatest, speak, the greatest fear that Americans have is, is to uh, stand up in front of people and speak. Now, we all feel this way at times. I've been called on to pray where there were mighty men of prayer, seasoned men of prayer, and it was hard for me to stand up and pray. I was intimidated to stand up and pray. Am I going to say the right things? How will it sound? Will I forget something I'm supposed to pray for? Etc., etc., Now, men, we need to overcome that and to follow the command that we've been given to to pray and to pray publicly. And let me say a couple of things to you about this. We are not in a prayer contest. Your heart that only God can see is the only thing that matters when you pray. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be scored uh, on a scale from 1 to 10. The people in this room are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are very gracious people. They are for you and not against you. And we are all in this together. And let me tell you something that is very important. You may not know this, but I promise you that this is true. It is a great encouragement, a great encouragement when each of you pray when every one of you is involved in public prayer, it matters to this body that you are here, and it matters to this body that you pray. It builds up and edifies the life of this church when all the men are willing to pray. And so I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged uh, or be, uh, to be uh, self-conscious about yourself and it be a hindrance to your prayers. We need for all the men of the church to pray. Another thing is this, be brief. Long prayers do not edify. They are an obstacle to our prayer services. This as well, be direct and to the point. State clearly what you're asking God to do in your prayers. Another thing is this, do not preach or teach or admonish. 
We are not making, when we pray, we are making requests and we're giving thanksgiving and we're praising God and it is not the proper time and place for teaching doctrine, for talking about your pet peeve, for scolding or admonishing the congregation, etc., etc. That's not what we're doing when we're corporately praying. There is a time and place for those kind of things, but it is not in our corporate prayers. Another thing is this. Help avoid long, awkward pauses. If you're able to pray, then do it. Don't wait. Go ahead and stand up and pray as soon as someone else finishes. I would rather have two or three men start to pray at the same time, and I have seen this happen before a few times. I would rather have two or three men start to pray at the same time, and some of them have to stop and sit down than for us to, to uh, not be prompt in our praying and for us to have long, awkward times of silence. So I encourage you, if you're able to pray, if you're willing to pray, then don't wait. Go ahead and be prompt to stand up and pray. And let me add this. It is helpful to the time of prayer to have many different men pray. Oftentimes, the same men pray over and over and over. It is more edifying if, if, the, if many different men in the church lead us in prayer. It is helpful. It is edifying. It is encouraging when that happens. I found this list that Charles Spurgeon made. He uh, wrote several things about prayer and prayer meetings. He made a list of things that are hindrances to the prayer meetings. Hindrances to the prayer meeting. Here's his list. There is the hindrance of unholiness. There is the hindrance of discord. There is the hindrance of hypocrisy. And those first three things he says there are what our verse talks about in 1 Timothy 2.8 when he tells us to have holy hands and to not be quarrelsome and not be angry men when we pray, to not have those things present with us when we pray. Then this is his next thing in his list. There is the hindrance of long prayers. The next one is, there is the hindrance of preaching little sermons in our prayers. There is the hindrance of a lack of being direct with our prayers, direct and to the point. There is the hindrance of a lack of real intensity in our prayers. And then he says this, speaking of this hindrance, the lack of real intensity in our prayers. He says, oh, brothers and sisters, one warm, hearty prayer is worth 20 of those packed in ice. I fear that much of our prayer is lost because we don't sufficiently throw our hearts into it. It is possible, possible for us to attend the prayer meeting and all the while be thinking of things at home the infant in the nursery, or the office, the factory, who knows what else. So that's a hindrance of prayer. We need to have real intensity in our prayers. And then there is the hindrance of a lack of faith. And what he means by that is asking, but not really expecting God to answer. And then lastly, there is the hindrance of inconsistency in our prayers. And what he means by that is praying for things that we don't have any intention to do anything about. A disconnect between what we pray for and then what we go and do. The hindrance of inconsistency in our prayers.
And then he addresses this question, what should be the great object of the prayer meeting and for what and, and that for which we should seek the answer. And then he gives these three things. First, it must be for the glory of God or else the prayer is invalid. Secondly, we must pray for the blessing on, for his blessing on the church. And thirdly, we must pray for the conversion of the ungodly. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I pray that uh, God will give us grace to be willing to lead in prayer and grace to do it well to the glory of God and to the edification of his church.